I, I definitely like will often like lose a guest right before a show and then like start sending desperate IMs to people asking like, Hey, do you want to be on again tonight? Like right now? <laughs> I mean, that, that's literally what you did. But, yeah. You know. <laughs> couple hours ago right right um and you should know you were the 13th person i asked <laughs> oh my gosh wow really funny thing about that so when you messaged me i don't know if it's discord or my phone but it has something that like has like pre-written replies that you can just hit and send uh-huh. uh i didn't actually say sure i just opened the message and accidentally hit that oh my- i just thought <laughs> <laughs> and like, i was like oh crap i can't back out now that sounds really weird if i just say yes Hi, I'm Quill. I'm Brad. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the, on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Quill, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I, my name is Quill. I am currently a uh, doing nothing in Chicago. Previously, I was working for a uh, software company. Right now, I'm kind of looking for either a new thing, so I don't really have, or like a new thing, or just working on my own stuff, so I don't really have a uh, anything to plug, so... I think the last time I plugged the Topic Lords Discord, I'll just do that again. It's it's a good Discord. Yeah, I like it too. Uh, and Brad, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, uh, I'm Brad. Uh, I'm a PhD student uh, studying computer science um, in kind of the sub area I study is called computer creativity. Uh, in terms of plugs, um, I've really been enjoying a podcast called So I'm Writing a Novel by Oliver Brackenberry, I think is his name. So, recommend checking it out. Cool. Are we ready to start on some topics? Sounds good. Yep. Uh, Brad, your topic is what superpowers like shrinking and invisibility suggest about how we conceptualize reality. All right. So, I mean, I mentioned I was a PhD student, so I really try to make a point to not just, you know, read my dissertation to you. Um, but I think, I feel like this is a good really conversational your dissertation way. about shrinking and invisibility? <laughs> I, no, and that's that's what I'm saying. It, it actually took me a few iterations to to make this a topic that's actually interesting to talk about okay okay um but the so the idea is um i like i said i study uh computer creativity which is what it sounds like you know trying trying to uh write programs that that you could accurately or or at least make an argument to describe that they're creative which is the whole thing but um one specific thing that's really interesting to me is uh how knowledge and concepts inform uh, all aspects of, of human cognition, including creativity. And so when we talk about uh, concepts and the way that we kind of wrap things up, you know, all these sensory inputs, you know, colors, smells, shapes, you know, emotions, even we wrap that all up and call this is a concept, right? This is a dog or this is a tree yeah, or, or whatever. I think it's really fascinating how, you know, we discretize and compress all that information into something that's very, again, discrete, right? It, it's its own thing. And so looking at ideas, superpowers, shrinking, invisibility, flight, teleportation, things like that, it's you're sort of, you're, you are applying with kind of ham-handedly applying a new property to an existing concept, right? So you say, this is a person, well, what if we made it small? I think what, what's interesting to me about it, and why I say it reveals something about how we conceptualize reality, is that in reality, there's, there's absolutely no physical way to make a person a quarter of their size, right? Like a honey, I shrunk their kid's size. Like that is just, 
you know, it's just so far out of out of the realm of actual possibility. Right. And yet, the way we conceptualize things, it's just a flick of a switch. Just say, oh yeah, just make them small, mm-hmm. right? And so I just think it, it reveals something interesting about what we exclude or what we uh, abstract when we when we conceptualize the things that we encounter in our lives. Yeah, yeah. It it is basically like assuming a a version of physics that respects human psychology. Yeah. Where like it, it physics knows about your conception of what a thing is and can can pr- perform operations on that thing as a unit. Something that I've thought about a lot is the sort of ways that we can kind of imagine different uh, kind of ways of, of experiencing the world. So kind of going off of what you're saying, I feel like it's, as you mentioned, it's relatively easy for us to just imagine someone a quarter of their size, or we could imagine what it would be like to be a quarter of our size or, you know, to be massive or something. But one thing that I, I, I'm perpetually curious about is what it would be like to have nearly 360 degree vision, like a lot of uh, prey animals do. I keep pigeons and chickens, which both have eyes on the sides of their head. And I feel like that one's pretty accessible. Like even just with a couple of mirrors, you could do that. Probably something similar, but I feel like it would be kind of a, a distortion of what the experience would actually be because uh well you could simulate it from an optical level that doesn't necessarily mean that like my brain would uh understand what it's seeing in the same way not at first but like if you had been like that from birth you would be used to it and you could certainly get accustomed to it if you gave it enough time or i don't know about certainly but i bet you could it's you're not doing anything you don't have a job right now you could just do this this could be your job <laughs> like 360 vision made me think of though is there are things we can't imagine like the classic examples like extra colors it's like almost spooky how you can't imagine it's like you can imagine so many things but you can't imagine another color yeah yeah it's not it's not available to us thinking about physics in terms of like physics respecting discrete objects it makes me think of like games like noita and this is this is maybe a stretch, but i've got a better example after this but i want to explain this one first if you've played noita it's a it's a a falling sand roguelike and falling sand is a genre of game where it uses cellular oh god there's so much i have to explain all right i'm gonna assume <laughs> the user knows what cellular automata is and if not they can google it uh it uses cellular automata to simulate uh physical processes like falling sand or flowing water or things that are on fire or gas rising uh but it also has the character, which is just a regular video game dude, implemented like the dude is a physical object running around, a discrete physical object, like the way you would conceive of a dude. Um, and <laughs> Platonic dude. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it also has um, rigid body physics where like – I'm not actually sure of the circumstances under which this happens. But like there are also objects in the world that can be under some circumstances converted into – discrete objects and then they operate uh on under a rigid body physics engine so like if Hmm. a wall breaks the wall can fall down like the the fragment of the wall can fall down as a unit Hmm. ideally if this game were had infinite cpu time and infinite presumably infinite game design time they could implement their dude running around at just pure physics and like just it's at some at some tiny like there are like four pixels in the brain that correspond to your arrow keys 
and the rest of it is simulated <laughs> from there. Um, there's another game that I can't remember the name of that that is uh, oh, maybe I'll maybe I, I, I now I can't remember what's interesting about this. Never mind. Right, you can cut <laughs> this part. <laughs> well, so, so you know what's interesting to me is I, I feel like what you're saying about the like sand simulation and physics simulation is to me that sort of it kind of wraps back around to to this this uh, way that human minds make things discrete, and I, you know we get into mathematics, right? How one, two, three, four, like these sharp, discrete, you know, separations between things are unnatural, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's a discontinuity, like you can't represent it, you know, naturally. And so I think that that's where you get into a lot of interesting. I don't want to say trouble, but com- complexity with like physics simulations, right? When you say every single drop of water is a discrete thing, and now we have to simulate how they all move together, right? It, it's a headache because that's uh, it doesn't seem that's how. Well, not that that's not how reality works, but it's like we're trying to bend some kind of simulation of reality to fit within this box of how we conceptualize things, and it seems like sometimes we have to do some some loop de loops to get there. Yeah. I'm still curious about what your second example was, and how I'll keep bringing it up so that you can't cut that part out. Okay, all right, <laughs> fine. Uh, it was a, it was a version of the game of life that had some interactive elements that I'm trying to remember how they worked. Uh, you were a character running around in a, in a cellular automata world. I don't think it was the life rules. I think it was just m- rules more conducive to uh, sh- shmup physics. It's it's impossible to search for cellular automata games because of the game of life. They call it they call it a game. All right, I'm gonna take a few moments and see if I can find this thing. Have you, have you just while you're looking? Have you guys kind of heard that? Um, uh, there's sort of a, a kind of a tongue in cheek jargon of where everything's a whatever I'm up, right? Like a shoot 'em up or a puzzle 'em up. I'm up. What did could you call Conway's game of life like a live 'em up? <laughs> that's that's a good. Uh, that's a good joke. I don't know if that's a good name for things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got the bare minimum. That's a good joke. So. Yeah. Uh, the Sims would be a good live em up. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Which isn't, can the Sims, for the most part, like once you get to a certain point, doesn't it kind of just play itself? Mm. It's been a long time since I played the Sims. <laughs> I don't know. And, and presumably this is different based on different versions of the game. Like, I remember in the very first version of the sims they really needed you to micromanage their lives or like they would get to the point where like they're equidistant from the bed and the bathroom so they can't choose between which one they want to do first so they pee on the floor and go to sleep in it very <laughs> relatable so would that be a pm up or a sleep up <laughs> <laughs> what is tetris is tetris a blocks em up a s- yeah. sort em up like wilmot's warehouse or stack em up to trauma them up. It's also funny because I feel like a lot of people categorize Tetris as a puzzle game, which I think it's also a really bad category for a game like Tetris. You know, unexpectedly, another name collision that's making this difficult is Near Automata. <laughs> and it has its shmup parts. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good game, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is one of those games that became unplayable and maybe left the world when uh flash stopped being a thing i'm sure there's a large category of things like that uh are we ready for another topic sure sure uh quill your topic is is there a point where you can call the silly things you make art and not feel like an absolute fool about it not not a debate about what is art versus not art but i feel weird if i make a bunch of bad music and call it my art (laughs) yeah i just i make a bunch of really 
kind of dumb things, usually for myself or for my friends. And I feel really weird of like how to describe them because it's something that I'm like putting creative effort into it. And it is, I guess, creative content, but I'm never really sure what to really call it or view it as. Yeah, I mean, how would you feel if you called it your craft? Hmm. Craft makes me feel like it's something that I have honed, and I feel like these are all skills that I am pretty bad at. What about your works or your oeuvre? (laughs) I feel like oeuvre is somehow worse than my art. (laughs) Definitely. It's definitely worse than your art. When works has that kind of Ozymandias flavor that might, you know... Yeah, and they could make you despair. Maybe it gives it the edge you need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if they're, it's bad music, maybe it'll make you despair. I, I'm curious for, for both of you, when you do anything creative, whether it's for yourself or for others' consumption, like, how do you usually view what you have made? Oh, it's all art. I, I, I consider a lot of real crap to be art, so I don't feel, like, I don't feel bad about uh, lumping my stuff in with that. I feel personally like there's like a threshold of something that's private to me versus something I'm putting out there. And I feel like I won't move things across that threshold unless I have some sort of confidence or, you know, pride in them. And so I feel like that question sort of answers itself. It's almost like a, you know, your own, you are your own worst critic sort of thing. So it's like, if I'm not ready to put it out there, then it sure as heck isn't art (laughs) yet. Right. To me. Like if if there's a distinction I make, it's, about purpose if, if a thing i make isn't for a particular purpose and purpose is nebulous but if i'm if i'm making something like if i'm sending somebody a text in order to you know ask them a question that i need the answer to that text probably isn't art but if i'm sending i'm sending somebody a text that i think is funny and i'm trying to make them laugh that text counts as art <laughs> I like that way of viewing it. I do agree with the whole you are your own worst critic uh, viewpoint because I have no problem calling like anything that other people do are like I'm thinking kind of in the context of like memes. I think most memes are some of the most interesting and influential art that's coming out now. But if I create one, I feel weird thinking of it as like something that I should be proud of or something that I have created usually because I think of it as being more ephemeral or more disposable it seems to me like that's the heart of this question is like how do you conceptualize the things that you make and and like you said i mean it or it seems it's interesting that there seems to be a very different set of criteria that you judge your own stuff by versus other people's offerings or works one thing that that this reminds me of that's kind of funny is is a a few years ago i just decided that I i wanted to write something longer form and I was going for something that was like, you know, novel length, like even like 100,000 words or whatever. But whenever I talked about it with my wife or other people, I, I always like cringed when people called it my book. And I always said, it's my story. I'm writing a story, right? Because <laughs> that's on the page. It is a story. And then, but it has not yet become a book, right? That's like, to me, again, it's all defined in that like threshold, right? Like it hasn't moved out. And so I, I guess it, it comes down to how... I mean, I, I already said this, but, you know, how you view it and uh, kind of what the terms are that or like, what the criteria you use to, to establish it. So I think I'm kind of talking in circles. But yeah, I feel like this actually kind of connects to the previous topic pretty well in the way that by just attaching a label to the semiotic representation of a thing, it completely can change 
the entire thing and not just the placement of that na- that label. Like suddenly deciding to call the person you're in a relationship with your girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's my art. I was going to say, <laughs> now you just need to call your songs your girlfriends and then you're done. Right? You got it. Yeah. It's, it, I think, it, I mean, it's really personal at the end of the day, but it's interesting how there's similarities between how we all conceptualize it. Mm-hmm. How, how's that story going, by the way? Uh, I appreciate you asking. It was, I now have three kids. So that was before I had kids. Okay. So that's how it's going. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've been trying to get back into like short story writing though, which is, you know, more digestible. Plus, plus the other thing I was writing ended up being like way, way too long. It was like already a hundred thousand words and it was like not even half of what I had in mind. So anyways, yeah. (laughs) One, One thing that's really nice about music is that you can make a song in an evening or, uh, if you're lucky in the time that the, the songs takes to elapse. Yeah. That's sort of the minimum, right? <laughs> you could time stretch it. <laughs> yeah. You can slow well, it no, down. You and can make... loop it. Right. Or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's it. Like, so if you're writing a round, right. You know, like one of those songs, technically you could write it and in less time it takes to sing it. Yeah. You just copy and paste it a bunch of times. <laughs> that's definitely art. That definitely counts as art. There's no question in my mind. We just, we just wrote that song. We did it together, guys. We should share songwriter credit. Yeah, our song is this podcast played three times in a row. Yeah, our song is this podcast <laughs> played three times in a row. Yeah, our song yeah, is this podcast played three times in a row. Yeah, our song is this podcast played three times in a row. One thing that I I did Nano Remo in like 2002 or something like that, and it wasn't a good story, but <laughs> the thing I like about that is that anytime I want to impress somebody i can tell people people i'm working on my second novel <laughs> i mean i guess that gets back to like how you conceptualize it right like as if you tell yourself aha this is my second novel right maybe that kind of greases the wheels a little more how much of that is you telling other people and how much of it is you telling yourself that this is the second novel therefore you have done this before uh, there's definitely some wanting to have the identity of being a creator there's something like in my mind that I romanticize the idea of being a writer and writing novels the same way I romanticize the idea of being a game developer and making games or being a musician and making songs and in more and more generally being an artist and making art. Like I feel like this is something that is cool to be and do. And so it makes me happy to identify as someone who does this sort of thing. I, I, I don't know. I mean, when you get into these ideas of like, well, what is, well, I don't want to get too too philosophical, but like, what's the purpose of life? Or like, at the end of the day, what is it you value about life? And a lot of a lot of the times, it comes back to art, you know, or like creativity as as a big part of that. Like, you know, people used to just sing songs all together on the campfire and, and stuff like that. And it's just sort of a very human thing, right? And so, yeah. I don't. know. I'm not trying to say give me a philosophy degree. I just it to me personally that helps me like let go of some of those anxieties sometimes, right? About like, oh, is this perfect or? Is this art? You know, I can just say, you know what? Of course it is because I need more of that in my life. It's just, I guess it's just about how you frame it. That is something that art has become a much different thing than it was like 200 years ago or a thousand years ago, uh, where nowadays we see like the art we consume is, let's say, the thousand best people in the world at making music. Mm-hmm. Are you, you could listen to only the best music made in the world and never run out basically whereas 
even uh, even a hundred years ago, uh, recorded music was extremely scarce, and the equivalent was sheet music, which you would have to play yourself, and so you become complicit in the act of creating the art. And a hundred years before that, well, I think they still had sheet music back then, but let's say back before there was sheet music, songs were passed down by ear, and it was it, it, it was a communal thing. It was much more about like sharing this bond with your family or your tribe than it was about i don't know i don't even know i don't i don't want to ascribe like what music is about nowadays uh, i don't want like i feel like i'd be uh, unnecessarily judgmental about it but it's a very different thing now than it was then and i think what it used to be was probably a lot healthier for humans uh-huh. and i think everybody has this drive to make art in a meaningful way and it's much harder for the art you make to feel meaningful nowadays when you're surrounded by so much art that is better than what you make. This is a little bit tangential, but I just I'm really fascinated by like the like what is the process by which some of these songs came to be so coherent? Like I, you think about sea shanties, right? Like you know people were just humming on the decks while they were scrubbing or whatever, but eventually now they're like have verses and chorus and you know it, it, they're. It's interesting to think about how before, like you're saying, before recordings where you can point and say, this is the song I wrote, like how they still kind of came together to something that that has like a, a form or like a structure mm-hmm. or like is known, like it comes to be one thing like, oh yeah, this is the sea shanty. Like, you know, even before music was written, there were still songs that people knew, right? I, I wonder if, if like two ships from like different parts of Europe if those crews got together, if they'd be singing the same version of the song, like certainly if you're singing it with your team and you've been singing this song for months with your, with your crew, you're probably going to be pretty in sync because you've just melded. Um, and you, you agree on whatever minor variation of the song that, uh, that you as a group have come to, I, this might not be relevant to your, to your uh, question, but like, I, I think it's interesting to consider that, I think people were just better at singing back then. Like, I think back then, like, the average person was much better at singing than the average person is now because it was so, it was so important to have music in your life and also apparently for your job. In the same way that, like, handwriting was superior back then? Yes. And writing was more flowery for some reason. Well, that's an interesting example, though, because, I mean, I bet most of the sailors who were singing a beautiful sea shanty together couldn't write a sentence to save their lives, you know? Yeah, like, probably not. It's kind of just what you practice. Like, people are probably a lot better at writing today. The, the lay person is probably a lot better at writing today, even though they're not as good as singing. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think um, the, the handwriting samples that we get passed down through the generations are the ones, are the, are the, the people who were educated enough to receive that training. Right, like a survivor's bias. I just couldn't. I just just with the 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 you're saying different ships singing the same version of the song. I now I want to see like a you know like some kind of you know pirate spoof where they get into a big brawl on the deck because they're disagreeing about like one of the verses or one of the words <laughs> of the song. Yeah, and it's like a very personal thing. Like no, it's this. No, it's that. Doing psychic damage to one another. Oh yeah, singing the wrong words. Like if you're like in an argument with someone, you like sing it really loud next to them just to piss them off. <laughs> uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Yeah, I got to know what this is. So so my topic is Stinky Meat and Stinky Feet. These were two web projects from like the early 2000s that I remember following, being very enthralled by. 
Uh, and I, at the time, I thought they were by the same person, but I don't think so anymore. Now I, I haven't been able to find definitive information, but I think it was two separate people doing these two projects, one inspired by the other. So Stinky Meat was a project where, um, according to this, Malin Smith bought a bunch of meat from the supermarket, put it on a plate in his neighbor's yard, and went back and took a photo every day until the neighbors found it. And it was just documenting how documenting the decay, the process of decay. Like at one point, one of the hot dogs just goes missing. I'm looking at this right now. Do do you know around what time this was from? Uh, I want to say this was like very early 2000, like 2001, maybe. I just clicked into the website and the very first picture is a picture of the guy's face. And he's lying on the plate. (laughs) Yes, I was going to say the morbid idea when this guy dies, is that going to be the final stinky meat project where you watch him decay in his neighbor's backyard? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It Man. foreshadows stinky feet, which I don't think is on the web anymore. Uh, for, probably for the best, honestly, because it was a, a project inspired by stinky meat where uh, somebody wrapped their feet up in saran wrap or plastic bags or something like that and just walked around like that for they wanted to do it for a month. But eventually, oh. <laughs> like their feet got fucked up enough that they stopped the project and went to a doctor oh yeah that sounds dangerous as you were describing that i was clicking into like the teens days on those stinky feet pictures or stinky made pictures so i just got like a double whammy with that yeah which is like its own kind of art project having someone describe stinky feet to you while you look at the stinky meat picture. <laughs> right i mean that's there's a storied history of people screwing up their own bodies for the sake of internet points right right yeah so. <laughs> this actually is a very interesting sort of art project if you want to talk about art in terms of like eliciting emotions i think quote art that elicits disgust is a very interesting you know way of looking at that or kind of sub genre of art Mm -hmm. right and you could also i think you could also make a strong argument this is also science the 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 melding of art and science i guess you can uh, replicate it so it must be science right (laughs) <laughs> right, you can replicate the... You, get, you have to get the neighbors to be angry on the exact same day. Would science require a control, though? Like, should he have put maybe toy food out on his other neighbor's yard? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or just an empty plate. Yeah. You just gotta go, yeah, go around your neighborhood, empty plate, toys on a plate, cooked food on a plate, raw food on a plate, frozen food on a plate. You know, you got to do 10 of each to get, you know, to to make sure you get their statistics come out well. I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking about this, like, kind of uncommon uh, emotions for art to elicit. I think it's interesting, like, the anger, right? Like, there's music that can make you feel, maybe not angry at something, but just kind of worked up. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's art out there somewhere that someone made just to piss people off, right? And they said... That pissed off reaction is the the emotion I was trying to evoke with my art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, Andre Serrano is a good example of an artist that, that has done that. He's probably most famous for his piece uh, "Piss Christ," uh, which is a crucifix submerged in a com- uh, combination of urine and blood. He, he's done a lot of other things wow. that are very uh, kind of visceral, like that, using actual like bodily fluids. And his, his work is specifically pretty provocative in a way that I feel like anger is actually, or at least backlash is one of the emotions that he's looking to, uh, looking for his art to present. I feel like I know 
a lot of artists who aren't trying to get any particular reaction, just want to get a strong one. Uh, and this, this includes like game designers who are like, if you get frustrated with their game, they're like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> it's interesting then how if, if your uh, criteria is just, I want a strong reaction, then in some domains, that's a lot harder to get than another, right? To make something really, really funny is a lot harder than to making something really, really gross. Yeah, I, yep. The, the, the bad re- uh, reactions are all much easier to elicit. Yeah, this actually reminds me of a a couple years ago when two games came out that I thought were very similar but took different approaches to the same idea, which was the game Celeste and getting over it with Bennett Foddy. Both of them being <laughs> kind of uh, narratives about overcoming things and using the imagery of climbing a mountain to communicate that. But mm-hmm. one is somewhat more antagonistic and aware of the frustration that the player feels, whereas the other one is also aware of the frustration, but much more encouraging and wants to see you through this process. Yeah. Getting over it doesn't have any, as far as I know, accessibility options. I mean, Jim, you mentioned, you know, a a creator will make a game and say, if you're frustrated, then I I succeeded. But isn't the whole point of getting over it that Bennett Foddy's talking to you the whole time about it? I, that was certainly a big part of it. The appeal for me was I wanted to, I wanted to listen to him talk. Like I should just get a find a Bennett Foddy podcast. I've been trying to get him on the show. Oh man, yeah. Do Do you know him? Yeah, we've met. And no is is as a stretch, but we're on good terms. Yeah, I just I guess I'm I'm just stuck on this idea of what emotions are common or uncommon to elicit. Because even if you think about you know you've got comedy movies, dramas that can make you sad horror movies that can make you scared or even disgusted in some cases, but anger. I mean, there's not media like movies at least that like make you angry. And that's the pleasure you take out of the, no, that's what tweets are for. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's already covered. Well, I was gonna, maybe something hyper violent. Cause I remember when I was like a, you know, a, almost at the end of my teens when I saw 300, I came out of that, that theater feeling pretty hot headed. Not like I went and punched anybody, but maybe that's the closest I got to feeling anger as like a, you know, pleasurable artistic emotion. Do you remember when people would get angry about music? When did, when they would? Did, yeah. did they stop? <laughs> I, I guess I'm not sure. Maybe I just stopped paying attention. But like I remember satanic metal being a big like the idea that heavy metal player like bands were satanic and had backwards messaging in the music and we're trying to get your kids to kill themselves. I remember that being a big issue that people were talking about a lot in the eighties and even like going back to like the fifties and sixties when rock and roll was emerging, they they called it the jungle rhythms because it was music that black people invented. <laughs> I was about to say that sounds super racist. It, it, oh it absolutely yeah. was <laughs> I like yeah. the, the, just the drum beat would make people angry. Well, that's like, I feel like not very long after that, that turned into what rap was, right? Oh, yeah. It's not even a melody. What's, what, this isn't even music. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's gross. There's that, what's that idea, like the um, profanity treadmill or something, right? Isn't that a thing where oh, like... Euphemism treadmill, I think, is the, the term, yeah. You know, a word that's just terrible to the previous generation is just part of everyday life. Like, oh my God, like my parents are very... Uh, religious and they they flip out if their kids say fuck and like but for our generation it's just normal like you just hear it you know and it's not like 
like, yeah, man, we made it normal, but it just is normal. <laughs> like it's just the vernacular. Right. And it's, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that being a generational thing. I just kind of assumed that as you grew up, it became more okay to say that word. And then the generations are all just kind of perpetually growing up. Yeah. Like a shepherd tone. <laughs> An example that I I would use for like a more specific group would be at a certain point in time, the word queer was very much seen as a slur. But nowadays, I feel like a lot of people like self-identify as queer or it's more acceptable to say the queer community, uh, being a queer person. Like that's how I view it. But I've encountered people, usually older, I'd say 50s, 60s at least, that are very uncomfortable around that word because of the connotations that they grew up with. Right. And that that seems like a case of reclaiming uh, mm-hmm. where people will take a slur and use it amongst themselves. Uh, and you know that they, the assumption is that, you know, that I don't, I don't mean this as a slur because I am one. Mm-hmm. And there are other words that like, so, so for example, I would have no qualms about calling somebody a queer. Actually, maybe not a queer. Yeah. Maybe, I would, <laughs> yeah. maybe just queer. <laughs> maybe I would have a problem with that actually. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't be comfortable doing that, but I'm close. Like I'm close to being comfortable. So I think like the in the, what that means is that the reclamation process has been successful to the point that like the word is available back to, for everyday usage, at least or or at least close to it. Whereas there are other words I can think of that have you know they've been the reclamation process has started, but it's not finished. So like I still can't say some words. Mm-hmm. I would still feel very uncomfortable saying other slurs. Slur, like, and they, and they still are slurs in some contexts, even though they're ne- not necessarily in others. Oh, man. And that, so that makes me think now of like how, you know, so, like social consciousness can even get, you can get like reverse effect, right? Where things that people used to say all the time, you know, in like the, the early 2000s, it's hard to even talk about them, right? Because I don't want to say them. But nowadays, you know, it's like super un couth right to call people you know like meant like using like mental handicap words right sure. it's like a yeah like a like a slur i mean that's like that's like the exact opposite of the treadmill right where yeah people I mean, are like oh my gosh we need to stop saying this th- i mean at this point in my life i am trying to avoid using words like uh stupid mm-hmm. in an interrogatory way you know there are stupid people out there they're not bad people they're just stupid and like when I say something that is stupid and I mean that that's it, that makes it worse, that's uh, I don't actually expect there are many stupid people listening to this show. I could be wrong, but still, it's the principle of the thing. Same with words that um, that to do with mental illness. No, absolutely. So this this makes me laugh because uh, I feel like the question that brings up was like, well, heck, what can I use? And uh, Ryan North with his uh, Dinosaur Comics, I think it was, oh yeah, it was earlier this year, came out with one where he, he uh, put forward that jabroni <laughs> is just the best euphemism, or, you know, the best pejorative, because it just, it's not racist, it just comes out of like wrestling or something, like they would call people jabronis. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of like a, like trash talk with wrestling. So I really liked that. Is that where that comes from? Yeah, like I, I've been afraid to use jabroni because I don't know what it means. I like I have no idea what the context is. Wiktionary says jabroni is a specialized rendition of the wrestling term jobber, i.e., one who loses to make other wrestlers look better. Hmm. Okay. I guess the oni part might be pseudo Italianized, so maybe maybe it's tiptoeing on the edge. But I mean, compared to some things, that's still you know a clean bill of health. Yeah, yeah, and for example instead of calling something crazy, like I think uh, 
there are a good. I think it was Jenny who tweeted about this, listing a bunch of useful words you could say instead of instead of crazy, like wild or intense. I should look that up because I feel like I now over uh, overuse the word ridiculous because I've re- replaced a lot of those words with ridiculous, That's and therefore too, I just. Though. But I say it all the time, and I, I need to find more more synonyms. Yeah. I, I say it a ridiculous number of times. <laughs> uh-huh. <Yeah. laughs> and this is something. This is this is an ongoing. I still will forget and say say these both of these things in life and on the show. And it's, it is what it is. You just you you try to get you try to be a better person. Yep. I feel like that's really like the kind of takeaway from stinky meat and stinky feet. Yeah, <laughs> you try not to try not to call people stupid or crazy. I just got to say, when you were mentioning the, that the euphemism treadmill is like a shepherd tone, <laughs> all I could think of was uh, Mario running up the infinite staircase <laughs> with it just saying, you know, like, 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 crap, damn, fuck, piss, right? Like, all the way up. Like, <laughs> Anyways, so. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, are, are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so for this topic, I'm going to be reading the poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers by Emily Dickinson. And then we're going to discuss it. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. So I think this is lovely. I also think that Emily Dickinson has a, a a more optimistic relationship with hope than a lot of people I know. That middle part about you know that it, it, a sore sore must be the storm that could have bashed a little bird. I mean, it sounds like she's a, she's admitting that it can be defeated, right, under some circumstances. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like describing something as or comparing something to a bird is giving it kind of a combination of freedom but also frailty. Sure. Yeah. I was just going to say, holistically, this is just seems like the Ur poem. Like, if you ask someone, like, what is a poem? It's like this nice, you know, a few little lines about a bird and hope. I don't know. It's just yeah. not, not, to, not, to, not to denigrate it. It's just very, like, prototypical in, in my mind of what a poem is. It's kind of interesting. Like, the I, Emperor of Ice Cream thing is, like, kind of out there, right? But this is like, yep, that's a poem. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it's because it's, it's from the 19th century, and they presumably poems are older than that, but like it's it's recent enough that the English isn't all weird, but it's it's far enough back that it has inspired and, and famous enough that it has inspired a lot of other poetry. But I do think this is a, like a really a really solid, really beautiful piece, and it's got a nice message. It's got a like like I, I like I like thinking about hope as a as a anthropomorphic is not the right word just trying to be helpful it's like sitting in the tree outside my window and waking me up and and earlier than i want to wake up i think this also kind of ties into our earlier conversation pretty well because emily dickinson if i recall didn't really share or publish any of her work when she was alive she was kind of very much like a private person and i believe that most of her poetry wasn't known about until uh after her death when i believe her sister shared it with people which I think kind of introduces the to the conversation. Is this a poem that is made to be general? Is this how she thinks other people should view hope, or was this a very personal thing to her philosophy and her experience? 
Uh, according to the bio on the right of the website that uh, is, is linked to in the topic bucket, she regularly in, regularly enclosed poems and letters to friends. So I do think this was a personal work for her, but also mildly social. Also like, hey, check, this thing out, check out this thing I made, which is such a better way to create and share art than like, posting it on the internet and trying to get lots of people interested in it. You mentioned something about some, someone said something about wondering if this is kind of her personal conception of hope. And I almost wonder if it's more revealing about whoever it was that she sent it to, right? Like if she was trying to buoy them up or represent how they felt about it. Oh, hope. interesting. That's a huge part of the context that we may never be able to have is who, if anybody, she wrote this for. That's even more ephemeral, right? Oh, maybe this is like, like a, a bitter sarcasm like it's it's the exact opposite of how she feels about it. oh that's so dark can you can you read a poem in a minor key and, and maybe that would yeah I'm, I'm thinking of like the the um sick sad world announcer from daria reading this poem out loud hope is the thing with feathers yeah there you go <laughs> oh man that's kind of gross like like you know in a funny way like I was going to say, I think we just, or maybe you just found, you know, when you watch a music, uh, music video at a quarter speed, it changes its context. Maybe you just have to read all these poems in a snarky voice <laughs> and discuss how it makes you feel. That's really good. That, yeah, like if, if I wanted to do uh, a horrible gimmick for, for the poetry corner, it could definitely be like, yeah, you have to read the poem in a, in a ridiculous voice. Maybe it's a different ridiculous voice every time. Like who, 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 does anybody here do a good Gollum impression? Oh no. <laughs> I don't want to attempt that cause I don't want to hear it. I'm going to list, probably listen to this later. <laughs> well, I was thinking you could just come up with a list of different frames of mind. Like you could like read it as if you were begging someone for your life or, yeah. you know, read it as if to calm like a scared child. I don't know. Maybe that's getting, I don't know. Anyways, that's not quite as funny, but yeah. <laughs> No, but but it is interesting, and and this show is definitely more interesting than it is funny. I think, or it's trying to be. There's a um a soliloquy, I think from uh, it might be from Julius Caesar that uh my wife has talked about. She's a uh, English teacher, and she said that it's a soliloquy that people usually read as kind of straightforward and uh, earnest, but if you read it. Uh, sarcastically or menacingly, it actually completely changes the scene in which it's in and also probably reveals a little bit more about how the character was actually written rather than how we kind of view it these days. I, I should check with her uh, which uh, which speech it is. I, I can find that out later. That's interesting, yeah. Well, that reminds me of uh, what's the prince, right? Machiavelli's the prince. There, There's like back and forth scholarly debate about whether it's straightforward or totally uh, tongue-in-cheek, like the, the uh, what do you call it? What's the one about eating the children, the mild proposition or whatever? Uh, modest proposal. Uh, modest proposal. A modest proposal, yeah. So, I don't know, if you look at... <laughs> Was Jonathan Swift actually advocating? Well, the... <laughs> see, but I, th I feel like that's... What's the... Is it Poe's Law, the sarcasm thing? Is that the one, right, where it's you can't detect sarcasm? I think so, yeah. Well, that I guess if you're talking about eating children, maybe you've gone far enough that that's not a, an issue anymore. But with the prince, right, saying this is how you oppress people and this is how you make them do what they don't do what you say and conquer people. There's been like back and forth scholarship on whether it was supposed to be. Do is he doing a bit? 
or does he mean it? Is it satire? That's the word, right? Is it satire, or is it supposed to be, you know, or is it just really cold-blooded? I guess. <laughs> I wonder how many how many works are just waiting out there to be interpreted in that light, and you could write, you could have a whole like either paper or book or research, you know, career just by taking everything, every well-known writing and reading it sarcastically and interpreting interpreting that way. Reading it in the six sad world voice. It's it's like the. I, th- I think this is still available on the internet. I found on SoundCloud a, a performance of the entirety of Hamilton in the Adam Sandler singing voice. Oh no! <laughs> oh man! It's really like I was gonna. I thought I was gonna listen to the whole thing because I thought it was. I thought I thought it would be funny, but it's just so off-putting. Like, it's it's a good rendition of that of that because like Hamilton, the backing tracks are available. Like. They made those the backing tracks available for like high school students to put on their own performances of the play, you know, to make it easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it sounds just like the real thing, except it's like someone doing the Adam Sandler voice. It's so awful. It's so hard to listen to. Speaking of art that makes you angry and disgusted, right? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Oh man, I didn't realize that those instrumentals were just out there. Now I really want to find them to do horrible things with them. Yeah, I don't think they're hard to find. Who's that guy on YouTube that does? You know, he puts on like the karaoke version of a song, but then just sings uh, "All Star" by Smash Mouth over it. (laughs) I I don't. I'm not familiar with this. With this, it just makes me think of uh, mouth sounds. John Sudano, Sudano is his name. He just he lets the song play, and then when the the words come in, he's just singing "All Star," and it just does it for like all these different songs. That's a that's a hell of a thing. Like, and, and at this point, even if he's sick of All Star, he's got to keep doing it. That's your bit. You got to keep doing your bit, or else your audience is going to dry up. Your self inflicted artistic purgatory. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yep. Quill, your topic is visual novels are neat, but I'm never sure whether they belong in my video game queue or book queue, and therefore I rarely play them because I always think I could be playing a real video game or reading a real book. So um, I recently kind of, I guess, re-realized that I really like visual novels. It was mostly because I uh, I recently played through Persona 5, and I really like the story elements of that, and it made me go back into my game collection uh, to replay through some visual novels they played years ago and then i started picking up some visual novels that i have bought in the past but never got around to playing it's weird because visual novels sit in this kind of realm between video games and books to me where i I try not to like be reading more than like two books at a time and usually i'm only playing like i'd say yeah similarly one or two video games at a time so visual novels feel like they're something that i need to kind of commit to and consume all in kind of like a rapid like set of reading slash playing sessions uh and therefore it always seems like it is in a way twice as much work to take on uh and try to consume all those pieces of media compared to just reading a book or just playing a video game when i read this in the topic book it just the first thing i thought of was sort of the like the setting in which you can interact with those because for me you know sitting in my computer versus sitting in bed are two very different states you know and so it's i guess that to me that's what keeps those cues separated is that i can't sit and play a pc game while i'm in bed but i can sure read then that's 
super interesting to me because like for, 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 first of all, like it seems like a phone is a perfect venue for a visual novel, but mm-hmm. also if a visual novel were on a phone, it would have microtransactions. <laughs> You'd have to like pay to get the good choices. And oh, I, when I say if, I mean, that's definitely happening all the time right now. The question is, can you also get the good visual novels on your phone? Like how to full boyfriend. I think there was quite a few that like decent visual novels for the phone. Uh, I, I will say one major uh, advantage of visual novels is it's kind of the perfect genre for using Steam Link and just connecting to my computer and playing my Steam visual novels on my phone. Oh, sure. I, I guess I'm also kind of curious about how the two of you in queue or like set up the the media that you plan on consuming because uh, I think it was actually just maybe last year that I decided to actually start writing things down and putting things in actual lists because there would be a lot of times where I'd finish a book and completely go blank on what the next book I wanted to read was and then remember it several weeks down the line. Uh, do either of you like keep similar things or have approaches to consuming media? I definitely should. As recently as like 10 years ago, I used to keep a list of games that I wanted to play, but I feel like my consumption of all media has dropped off pretty heavily lately. It just in, in part because I I have been focusing so much more on, on making video games that like the energy that would go into playing them kind of goes into that instead. Uh, and, and then also it goes into the energy goes into my child a big source of my where where my attention goes these days but one thing that has come up repeatedly is that my wife and I will watch a mo- like a movie together we'll watch like half of it and then it'll be t- like one of us will fall asleep and then we will have like five movies that we've watched half of cuz we've forgotten <laughs> about them <laughs> that hurts my soul yeah <laughs> but i feel it yeah well i feel like i've heard people say like, oh, I watched half this movie and then half the next day. And even that is like, I, I just, I guess to answer your question, uh, Quill, I just, I am such, I'm not a binger, like I'll stay up all night watching something, but I'm like very focused. Like when I am playing a game, that's all I'm playing. Or like when I'm reading a book, I like read it all the way through before moving on to the next thing, which almost sounds like a really good solution to, or, or like a good way to kind of deal with what you're saying. But then the problem is I go between them for a long time because it's like, it's like hyped up in my mind, like, well, I know I'm going to be reading this whole thing for the next month or playing this whole game for the next however many weeks. So I have to like, yeah, I get kind of that decision paralysis. So it's sort of good, sort of bad. But what I do, I mean, with books, I, I, I'm not, I'm not like a proponent or evangelist of this, but just for myself, I really, really only like reading like physical books with paper. And so I feel like that's helped me. It helps me do that focus thing. So like, I'll go on, Goodreads or something where I have a list of like books I want to read, which kind of like Jim, I think probably like you were saying, you know, that list just gets out of hand after a while, but it's like, okay, I want some books. So I'll go check two or three out of the two or three of those out of the library, kind of at random, just kind of what I'm feeling. And then once they're there on the, on the bedside table, I usually can, you know, just kind of grab one and and start reading. So I don't know. It's really scattershot, but once I latch onto something, I, I kind of go hard on it or whatever. (laughs) You just made me realize that I have a library book from 2019. They still haven't returned. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was only a couple months ago. So you're good, right? (laughs) Time has slowed down so much. They can't charge library fees. Actually, I I think my library doesn't, uh, I live in Chicago. I'm pretty sure Chicago libraries don't charge library fees, but I think, at a certain point, they just give up and make you pay for the book. I'll have to look at that. <laughs> yeah. 
Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. Brad, your topic is cortical homunculus. All right. So there's a Wikipedia link on the topic bucket. I think, you know, this is a very visual thing. So you're just going to have to probably open that up and look at it. That is such a cursed image. I love it (laughs) so much. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. (laughs) So the idea of the cortical homunculus, I don't know how they, they... because the first image in, in Wikipedia kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? Because the idea is that the cortical homunculus is you map the size of your various body parts to proportionally represent how much space they take up in your brain. Right. Right. So, like, there's this picture where, you know, the the, the hand, right, the fingers in the hand take up about as much room in the brain as your entire, like, this trunk, neck, head, shoulder, arm, right? It's about the same amount of physical space. And so, so that's interesting, right? It's like, okay, yeah, you know, different, you could, you know, the different sensitivities or how, you know, fine muscle control you need. But then where it just catapults straight into the cursed realm is someone made these little, I mean, homunculi, right? These little models out of clay of a person with their features distorted to be those sizes. Yeah, enormous and lips just, and tongue. Yeah, yeah. Just every sensory organ is huge. The mouth especially. And the hands just dwarf everything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just one of those things you just look at and you don't even, you're just in awe for a moment. I, it's like one of those, like I, this seems like the ultimate white elephant present to get someone one of these statues. Oh my God. If that was like a Funko pop. (laughs) (laughs) Those things are already horrifying or, you know, kind of uncanny. I was, I had actually forgotten about, I'd seen it before, but I'd forgotten about the, the main cursed image of this article. When I first loaded up the article, the one I was reacting to was the the um, the one that maps the parts of the body onto a physical like a like like a profile of the brain. Mm-hmm. And so, like you've got <laughs> like your your knee like hanging over the the back part of the like the foot is dangling. <laughs> Like in between the hemispheres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh! Now, now you could have you could have a um, like a fractal cortical homunculus, right? Where the top of the the homunculus head opens and you see it mapped, <laughs> like the the legs and feet mapped onto its little brain. Oh, that's so good! I love that. <laughs> good, good is certainly a word I wouldn't use, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is just one of those things where you just kind of stand in awe of it. I feel. All right, I'm I'm searching Amazon for cortical. Let's see if I can. No, 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 no. None of these are what I'm looking for. <laughs> the way you were saying that, I thought it was just pages and pages of results, and you were just you know in, in terror. Oh no, that would be incredible. No, that's the kind of no I want. Although, so I went to Amazon and typed in cortical homunculus, and the third uh, row down there is. A shrimp Obama magnet. <laughs> so it's like a, it's like a shrimp with Obama's head superimposed over. That is okay. It's a yeah. It's a fridge magnet. That's good. Right next, right next to a Bofa D's nuts candle. <laughs> I uh, tried Etsy. Uh, similarly, I'm getting a lot of shirts about adrenal cancer. Oh, Etsy is a much better choice than Amazon for this. Uh, I, I'm trying a couple different permutations of the words. <laughs> So here, somehow this came up with just a regular gingerbread cookie cutter, and, and but I just had a, a vision in my mind of a cortical humongous cookie cutter. I just found something that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I think is worth sharing. I'm trying to figure out how to say it to you. 
angry little friend taxidermy monster sculpture monster sculpture oddity i should probably describe it's a um what seems to be a sculpture made of bones and fur and the head is a skull bound in twine with what looks like i think shotgun shells as its eyes but but facing inwards so that like if you hit his face with a hammer you'll blow his brains out and if I'm not mistaken, it looks like all of them have already been fired because they've got the pin, the indentation, right, on the on the cap. I wonder what that artistic statement that's trying to make. Uh, it probably means this thing's already dead. <laughs> and, and and for good reason. Not to distract from that, but right as you posted that, I did find a sensory homunculus model made to order uh, on Etsy. Unfortunately, it's sold out, but it says you can request a custom item. I don't know if that's going to come up with it. And one of the things that really caught my eye is it. <laughs> there's a review under it that says five stars. She made it really well. It fits perfectly on my son's head. <laughs> but it took me a second to realize that was a review for a different item in their shop. <laughs> it's like what person made their son wear this this horrible homunculus on their head? <laughs> it's his Halloween costume. Oh my gosh, there's a Halloween costume. You could totally do that, right? Because the most of the body and legs are, you know, the right size. You just need a horrible paper mache head and hands. Yeah. Wow, that's real good. That that okay. That's too good an idea to just let be a joke. We should we gotta make that a Patreon exclusive. Oh, I like that in all these depictions, uh the sensory homunculus has its hands typically like out and upwards, as if it just like told a Seinfeld joke is waiting for a response. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Cortical homunculus giving you the finger. Yeah, it should be posable for sure. <laughs> so one thing that kept coming up in these searches was, I, I it's on Wikipedia, hum, like little figurines of uh, homunculus ioxodontus, which is apparently a statue by, well, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It's a Dutch artist. And apparently this has become a meme that I don't recognize, but it's a very like it kind of looks like uh, the 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 keyboard player in uh, the uh, yeah in Jabba's palace yeah, yeah. yep <laughs> that's interesting the fact that he's got a, a bulbous lower half I almost can't help but interpreting in the cortical homunculus sense so he's got he's, he feels very well with his giant fat foot. or like he uses a lot of brain power to digest food. <laughs> yeah there you go he savors every little thing wow it says according to the sculptor the figure symbolizes the emotions who peop- of people who wait at the doctor's office it's that specific <laughs> there there is no way that the that the star wars character is not inspired by that somehow like the head is just uncanny is it max rebo is that his name that my well, the star wars thing came first this is from 2016 oh well there you go well, max rebo <laughs> I just pulled that out of that. Wow, I, that is a pull. I knew that one. <laughs> oh, no. The first line of the Wikipedia intro says he's a male whatever and a popular jizz whaler. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that's what they decided. Like, George Lucas decided that that genre of music is jizz. And the performers are jizz whalers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think everyone who knows about that becomes a jizz whaler, whether they want to or not. Like, or, you just can't help Or it. a jizz master. Oof. I'll say, not much better is the official StarWars.com databank description, which says Max Rebo was the heart, or at least the fluid sack, of the band that bore his name. 
All right. All right, Star Wars Data Bank. <laughs> you can have that joke. I wonder how long it'll take Jizz Whaler to move its way down the, the euphemistic treadmill. <laughs> uh, Jizz was first mentioned in canon in the Star Wars Return of the Jedi novelization by Ryder Windham. Released in 2017. Apparently this is a new thing. Oh, wow. That's like how um, uh, Palpatine, right? His first name is Sheev. Right, that didn't come out for like it came out way after the fact. Jizz Whaler. This can't be right. I feel like I've been making jokes about jizz since before 2017. Oh well, actually, wait a minute. Are you in the canon section as opposed to the legends? Right? Oh, is this Disney's sanitized version of jizz? Whaler? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I see the two tabs, but I don't know the difference between them. Oh well, so so canon is after you know Disney bought Star Wars, they just went through and, and torched everything that they didn't like and said they were starting over. So all the old books and RPG manuals and everything is now legends, quote unquote. So they don't have to, they're not saddled to it when they make new Star Wars content. I see. The edit history on the legends page goes at least back to 2005. So, okay. There all right. <laughs> all right. That, so at least, uh, at least I know that my uh, memory is intact and it's the, it's the Star Wars wiki that needs work. Oh man, this this edit history is really great also. One of the edits is, quote, offshoots just sounds bad in an article called Jizz. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. <laughs> Quill, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, Sure. So uh, my contact information has been uh, hidden as clues throughout this podcast. Can you put the clues together and find me? Yeah, you can find them in the Topic Lords Discord. Oh, that too, yeah. <laughs> and Brad, if this is something that you want, where can people find you, find you on the internet? Uh, well, so I'm on Twitter at Brad Spendlove. So S-P-E-N-D-L-O-V-E, Spendlove. That's just my name. I don't know that I post anything super interesting there, but that's where I am. And then now, uh, of course, I'm on the Topic Lords Discord. So I'm always happy to chat with people. I'm just not one of those you know, premium follows on Twitter, I wouldn't say. <laughs> According to legends, Jats was a genre of music popular in the Galactic Republic. Jats was considered turgid and outdated compared to the more modern genre of leap jump. <laughs> They've got to be doing this on purpose. You can't use turgid in the same <laughs> sentence as jizz and not know what you're doing. Uh, thanks so much for being on Topic Lords. Yeah, thanks for Thank having you. us on. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!